Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 207 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc. Actually, during this episode with my guest this week, Chris Aquavella, we talk about the dog, um, and we also talk about a bunch of composers in the classical world, and the dog himself is an, an incredible composer, and you know, you can go buy all those Dog Works volumes that they have put out at Acoustic Disc. They're exclusively available there. Also, the Acoustic Encounters podcast with Danny Barnes and David Grisman. Actually, I believe it was just Danny Barnes' birthday. Happy birthday, Danny Barnes. And you can also sign up for their email list where they'll send you a free treat of the week every week. That's a free song right there in your email box for nothing but the price of an email address. Hope everybody's doing well. I'm hanging in there. Day 14, I believe, of this crud that I can just not shake. Uh, I am feeling considerably better, but I am still pretty congested and just still tired. But I, uh, I, I'm i feeling energized every day now here, and I want to thank everyone for the well wishes and all that great stuff, too. So thank you very much. This is going to be the last episode of the year. Be back at it in 2024. You know, 2023, it's had some some highlights and some uh, some low things, and uh, I'm looking forward to the new year, and I've got, I'm excited. I've got a few things to announce in the new year uh, that I think, I, hopefully, you, you guys will be interested in anyway. One is a recording, and yeah, just a few other things. So I'm really excited to, uh, to crank in the new year and then also spend some time with my family. So I hope everybody here gets to do the same and enjoys the next couple weeks and uh, has a happy new year as well in 2024. Let's get into the uh, to the sponsors here real quick. Peghead Nation, this is a great gift for somebody. Buy them the gift of lessons online with some of the best instructors in the mandolin world. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, Chad Manning, and Ian Corey. From beginner to advanced, choro, jazz, chord melody, they have got it all. The best part is you can get your first 30 days for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com now. Use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com and download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Uh, Scott at the Mandolin Cafe was just up there, and he's got a cool post about being at Northfield. You should check that out on my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. Ear Trumpet Labs, hand-built microphones from Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. You can check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. Tone Slabs, grab yourself a slab of tone. As a matter of fact, don't wait. You can get the December discount code right now. It's 25% off. The code is D-E-C-S-A-L-E-S. December sales. December shortened to D-E-C. If you go to ToneSlabs.com, it's right there on the front page. Upgrade your tone now. ToneSlabs.com. If you get some uh, extra holiday cash, it's probably too late to get this now for the holidays, but head over to SiminoffBooks.com and get the life and work of Lloyd Allaire Lore over at SiminoffBooks.com. I've said it multiple times. It is much more than a book. 
It's the story. It's pictures. It's a historical document. It's incredible stuff. And I just want to thank Roger for uh, the advertising the past uh, two years here. Thank you so much to Roger Simonoff. I truly appreciate you and, uh, and, and the support that you've shown me in the last couple of years. So thank you very much. And Elderly Instruments. My buddy Scott was up there as well, checking out the award-winning Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new used vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They are now in their 51st year. They're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. All right, let's get into the episode, the final episode here of 2023. Chris Aquavella had a great conversation with Chris. We have a very similar background from when we were younger, and, uh, you know, his stuff's great. He's got a ton of albums out. Um, I've linked him below to his band camp. Uh, again, I always highly recommend if you love what you're hearing, please purchase the album from the artist. But it's also available streaming at Apple Music and Spotify. I'll leave links to his website. And you can also buy the entire Kensington Etudes book. And I'll leave a link below to that only because I can't pronounce the publishing company and I don't want to goof it up. So I'll leave a link below to that as well. Chris was also kind enough to uh, send me two examples of right-hand exercises. He teaches his students. Those are free of charge, and you go to mandolinsandbeer.com and download those for free. Thank you to Chris for that. All right. Well, thank you so much once again, everybody, for listening. I truly appreciate you. Have a safe and happy holiday season. Have a happy new year, and I will catch you in 2024. Cheers, everybody. I'm uh, happy to welcome to the podcast the very last episode of 2023, Chris Aquavella. Chris, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Man, thank you so much um, for, you know, actually a student of yours reached out. And then shortly after that, um, you had sent me uh, an email. And I'm so happy you did because this album, Recording of the Dawn, the Kensington Etudes, Volume 1, and it just blew me away. Now, first question, what are the uh, Kensington Etudes? Uh, the Kensington Etudes was actually a Christmas present to my students. You know, I think um, as, as mandolinists or as musicians, I think uh, we should be extremely thankful for the people that decide to share their lives with us and study music with us. And I know for myself, uh, I just have a wonderful group of students, and I was, I'm just so thankful that they uh, – choose to share their musical life with me. And so one year, I think it was uh, 2019. Yes, 2019, as a Christmas present, I offered to write each one of my students a piece of music uh, or an etude. Uh, well, I, just a piece of music. And um, if they chose to you know, be a part of it as a, a way of saying thank you for studying with me. And so um, 30 students, uh, well, 31, I think, 31 or 32, uh, came in and sent me an email. And what they had to do is they had to give me, you know, write their name, 
what instrument they wanted it for. So either mandolin or mandola or octave mandolin is what we call it or in America. And then, um, and then what technique they would like the etude to focus on. And so, uh, yeah, and I just compiled, I compiled all of them and I just started chipping away and then Corona hit and uh, once, or not, yeah, once COVID hit, you know, and everything was locked down, um, yeah, I just started, it didn't change my teaching at all, but uh, I couldn't go anywhere else. So I just started composing away. And when I embarked on it, I thought, well, this, you know, this might take me until next Christmas. And, you know, well, three years later, here I am. And I finally finished uh, the, the etudes. So um, it's called the Kensington etudes because I dedicated the whole work uh, to my very first student, who is Gary Payne. Uh, and he lives in, um, he's a dear friend and he's, we still do some musical adventures together and he lives in Kensington, San Diego. And so I just, I dedicated the whole work to him and, uh, I named it the Kensington Etudes. Now each piece is, was written for a particular student and the titles of the pieces, uh, or even the mood of the pieces, uh, reflects you know what something about that student either where they're from or a conversation i had with them or a joke or you know something that was was happening at the time that's what an amazing story (laughs) so yeah i'm i'm very pleased with it and i know my students are having a great time with it and uh it's it's really fun to watch them uh learn the piece you know and uh and it's, I think it's a, an interesting situation in the sense that they have a chance to learn a piece of repertoire and just ask the composer what the hell he was thinking. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like, like why, why did you do that? You know, or why, why is it so hard? You know, kind of thing. You know, like technique, people with great technique, sometimes it can become overwhelming. And you found a way to make it just absolutely beautiful. And you almost forget you're listening to something that sounds so complex until you're like, geez, um, I think I was, I had to go back and listen to Recording of Dawn a second time. And I'm like, what in the heck is that technique at the end? You know, you don't even even realize because it's just a beautiful song. you know going back and listen to it a second time i'm like whoa so um you know wow, thank I, I, you absolutely so um before we di- dive into the album uh you, you know you play classical i was looking at your bio you also were you, you also played in like a hardcore band so what was your first instrument that you picked up so my first instrument was guitar uh, when i was a kid and, you know, I started, I think, like most teenage boys do, you know, I started when I was 10, you know, and I learned Ozzy Osbourne, Crazy Train, and, you know, you start playing. And I got into Rush at a very young age. Uh, and, yeah, just played heavy metal, 
you know, I grew up in the eighties, so it was all about hair metal bands. So I got into extreme and, uh, Montley crew and all that stuff. You're, you're talking my language. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it's, it's the best way to grow up, right? So you're listening to all the, the, the rock bands and stuff like that. And yeah, when I was a, when I was a kid, I was just growing up on all the rock bands and, and metal bands and, you know, the, you kind of go from like the hair metal bands and then eventually you get introduced to Metallica and then your whole world changes and, and all the music seems to get heavier from that <laughs> point. So then I was into, you know, Metallica and Megadeth and Anthrax especially. And, and then eventually that turned into like hardcore and hardcore punk, like Black Flag and then Sick of It All, Mad Ball, Biohazard, that sort of stuff. It, 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 you you telling me that after listening so much to this recording is blowing my mind. <laughs> you know, not so much the technique portion. That actually makes sense. The, the heavy, heavy stuff, though. That's wild. Yeah. Well, it's it was great. And mostly, you know, I got into the hardcore scene because of, you know, friends. You know, guys uh, I met in high school and we became really close friends. And, and being a part of that music scene is like... In the same way, being a part, being a mandolinist, it's it's part of being a brotherhood. You know, we're united by this instrument, and uh, well, in the hardcore scene, you're united by uh, your social surroundings and and the friendships that you make. And so that's what attracted me to that style of music so much. Now, I do have to mention that throughout this whole period, uh, I was taking classical guitar lessons. Uh, and, uh, I was also listening to classical music at the same time. That's another tie in with some of the, uh, like some of the, the friends I knew I was a, a drummer in bands like that. And, um, so a lot of the guitar players I knew all went on, they started listening to Segovia and, um, you know, and had classical guitars and, you know, were really influenced by like D by Randy Rhodes, which is, I think, like yeah. a stepping point for some of those guys. So that's, that's wild to hear this. It's like, it's like we grew up in the same city. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And like Inve Malmsteen and Inve Malmsteen was a real and Steve Vai, they were like a real uh, passion of mine when I was younger because it, it, it kind of combined the two worlds. Right. It combines that classical uh, technique and that classical language. But at the same time, it, it, you know, it's heavy metal. It had it was rock and roll. You know, it had the drums, the bass and energy. And that's, I think, kind of what I really like in music is the energy that you can get from it. It's what first attracted me to bluegrass back in the day as well, is the energy that comes off of those albums. Now, when you started taking classical guitar lessons, is that where you started to learn how to read uh, notation or were you reading notation before that? No, I was reading notation from the very, from the very, very beginning. Luckily, my mom had found me a, a really good teacher, uh, you know, that he would, he would tab out, you know, Guns and Roses, but at the same time, he'd forced me to read these beginning uh, guitar books, you know, and, and read the notes on the staff. And um, so I was lucky that way in the sense that I learned how to read standard notation from the very, very beginning. And then when did you get the mandolin in your hands at this point? So the mandolin happened when um, I was in a, a band called Born Blind. We were signed to Face Down Records and uh, and Face Down Records. Uh, sorry, Face Down Records and Tooth and Nail Records. And um, and so during this time, 
you know, naturally when you're playing on a hardcore band, you listen to Irish music. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I was really into the Chieftains and uh, Dervish and Alton and all these great Irish bands. And I was over at somebody's house and I was looking through their record collection. And uh, this guy's like, here, check this album out. And he, and he puts on, um, uh, you know, an, a bluegrass album. You know, it's a bunch of guys in red jackets on the front cover. And I was like, oh, okay. And it was the Kentucky Colonels with Roland White on mandolin. And man, like I heard that and I went, wow, holy smokes. Like, what's that guy doing? I love that. You know, and I really like the, the sound of the mandolin and the drive of the mandolin and and um, this other guy had a mandolin that I could borrow, an old 1970s Ibanez uh, two-point, I think it was. And so I just started, uh, you know, playing mandolin a little bit, and, and it just became a passion and kind of took over my life. And you started, you were in kind of an Irish-slash-bluegrass band in, in the San Diego area as well for quite a while. I was. So just after I started mandolin, uh, you know, about a year, two, two years later of, of learning mandolin, I started um, an Irish band called Clarsa with the guitarist of the hardcore band. And uh, yeah, it was cool. We started writing our own tunes. And at the same time, we were, you know, playing all the Irish standards. got a gig at, at a, a pub called Dublin Square Irish Pub down in the Gaslamp District of San Diego every Saturday night. And that was great fun. And and I learned the mandolin, you know, uh, a lot through that band and trying to have to learn a lot of tunes. And it forced me to learn the fingerboard much faster than just taking lessons and, and uh I don't know, it really helped me fall in love with the instrument. And around that same time is when I was exposed to the David Grisman quintet. And once I heard that, it was all done and over with. <laughs> I knew mandolin. I knew mandolin was exactly what I wanted out of life. And, and it was a great fit for me. Um, and I just, I absolutely loved, you know, what, what David Grisman did uh, on those albums, especially the early ones. You're talking about learning the fingerboard. I think that's one thing that uh, is a common theme is learning the fingerboard better. What were some of the tricks? You know, you said you had to kind of learn it a little bit quicker because you're learning all these Irish songs. Was it just 
woodshedding that you were learning it or because you have some theoretical background and reading background as well. So was it a combination of that? How did you go about it? I did. Well, I I kind of approached the mandolin uh, the same way I approached the classical guitar or the guitar in general um, is that once once I could understand the scales, I basically played a lot of scales and arpeggios and learned the positions. So that way, when I looked at the fingerboard, when I look at the mandolin fingerboard, uh, I could just see the notes out in front of me and I can see uh, where every single note is. Um, one of my old teachers, Allison Stevens, she used to make me um, close my eyes and she would say, okay, now give me every A flat. And I would have to play her every A flat on the fingerboard without looking and just knowing where it is and visualizing it. And she would do that for every note of the eight tones or of the 12 tones. And so um, I think that's one of the best things to do is, you know, learn your scales, learn your arpeggios. So that way you can visualize the patterns and see the notes in all the positions. Then it's a matter of whether you actually need them or not. A lot of Irish music can be played in, in first position. A lot of bluegrass for that matter can be played in first position. But I, I love the mandolinists that don't, right? That the ones that take it out of first position and, and utilize the entire instrument. What were some of the um, bluegrass guys and, and, and Irish guys that you were studying mandolin playing wise? Were you were you like just woodshedding at that point or were you playing too much to even spend time to woodshed? How did that look for you? Oh, no, no. Yeah, I was doing a lot of woodshedding. I mean, at that time, I, you know, before kids and marriage and having to work a lot for a living, <laughs> I seemed to have a lot of time. So, uh no, I was playing the mandolin all the time, you know, trying to get better at it. And, uh, you know, I'm still a young guy at this point, at that point, you know, and so, um, yeah, I, you know, I listened to a lot, a lot of music at that time. David Grisman, Mike Marshall uh, were definitely big role models playing wise. Also around that time, another local San Diego kid hit the scene. Uh, you know, this, this little kid by the name of Chris Thiele. <laughs> yeah. And, and pretty much we all just went, what the hell? <laughs> and <laughs> like that just totally blew our minds. And, uh, and of course, Mark O'Connor, you know, we know him as a fiddler and violinist, but he's actually an amazing mandolinist. Um, and that kind of bridge of the Grisman style to the Chris Thiele style. And yeah, the cleanliness that Chris Thiele brought at that point, especially the, you know, the early Nickel Creek albums and then his solo album, Not All Who Wander Are Lost, uh, that just, you know, of course, blew blew my mind, the cleanliness that he brought. And so that got me thinking, hey, you know, there might be something more to the mandolin than what I'm doing with it, you know. And so those are the things that I was woodshedding at the time, you know, learning licks and learning tunes. And, uh Yeah. So then how do you go to this next level? Because... You know, I, I was really interested to to talk to you, especially about your background. And, you know, already I'm just blown away because, you know, sometimes classical players seem to be, well, that's just kind of what I grew up 
playing, you know, but you've come mm-hmm. from a really cool in different background not that the other background isn't cool but like one that i can relate to a little bit more you know you know what i mean like of course you know and and so uh you know listening to this album you know it's not a way that and some of your other stuff too it's not a way that i think when i'm writing to compose and it really is like wow what so what led you to this because it's it's really great stuff man thank you um yeah well you know it's one of those things where you know, it's just as a man matures, he changes and, and he's always looking to better himself and he's always looking for where he belongs in the world. And so Born Blind, the band Born Blind, which I was playing bass in, by the way, I wasn't even guitar at that point. <laughs> no I was playing kidding. bass. Yeah. Um, and so that was 97 to 2001 so around 2000 2001 um was when i just i was really wanting to take my mandolin playing to the next level and i was trying to decide what the next step in life was and so at the time my partner she got a fully paid scholarship to do her phd in cambridge university um, in England. And so I was like, Oh, well, what am I going to do in England? So I was going to be moving to England at some point. I'm like, gosh, what am I going to do? And I was like, you know what? I'm let's go back to music college and, uh, let's, let's, you know, let's do it right. Let's get my degree, but I'm not going to go as a guitarist. I'm going to go as a mandolinist. Uh, yeah. So I did some research and, um, I just typed in classical mandolin England and what came up was Alison Stevens, a uh, great British mandolinist. And, and I read her bio, and in her bio it says that she was a professor at Trinity College of Music. And in very typical American fashion, I was like, yeah, I could do that. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, sure enough, I, I, I applied, and I did – my um at that time i could do an audition video so like i didn't have to fly to england to audition but i had to do a video and i had to do three pieces and i swear to god they must have been drunk when they were watching my audition video to let me in because at, at the time i uh i was kind of into rockabilly as well and so i had my hair slicked back like i had a pump and and i was wearing a 1950s uh white and blue hawaiian shirt <laughs> <laughs> and i'm playing an f5 mandolin and uh i did three pieces you had to do three pieces and i did when mandolin's dream by chris Thiele. And I did, uh, at the time it was called Aonzo's Lullaby, but now I think it's called Nina Nani or something like that by Car- uh, by Giuseppe Aonzo. And then I did uh, an arrangement of, uh, I think, a Bach Toccata or something like that. It was something by Bach. Um, and it, I got it out of a... Uh, neoclassical electric guitar book. (laughs) And I just kind of transposed it to the mandolin. And and that's what I did. Because that was, that was kind of all that I knew about the classical mandolin, which was clearly nothing. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, I sent in the video and next thing I know, they, uh, they accepted me into Trinity College of Music. Yeah. 
And so I did it, you know, I just kind of went in with uh, a workman's work ethic and I just charged it. And that first year was super daunting and totally fell out of place. And at times felt like I didn't belong there. But at the same time, um, I knew I had what it takes to get there. You know, I, I knew technically I was pretty good. I just needed to learn the language and I needed to settle into a different groove. And so, uh, yeah, then that started my, my career at Trinity College of Music, which uh, I see as some of the greatest years of my life. What are some of the classes that first year that you took? So just like any college, you have you have your, you know, prerequisite classes and stuff. So they had one called contextual studies, and that's learning basically music history. Yeah, just basically music, music history and how the compositions related to that part of the history. Um, musicianship, which was very good. That's learning uh, harmony and counterpoint and very basic, uh, you know, compositional skills. And that's not even as a composer. We had string tutorials, which is basically all, all the string players, uh, harpists, guitarists, violinists, cellists, mandolinists. Uh, we all met together and, you know, worked on things in relation to strings. Like in that case, I was able to do a mandolin and string trio pieces repertoire, uh, which was really fun. And um, yeah, and then aside from that, then you have your primary study, which is your mandolin tuition with Allison Stevens. How many years did you go to? How many years did you go to school for then? So I was there for four years, wow. and I was in England for five years. Yeah. So then you move back to the States or do you stay over in, in Europe? Well, I had, uh, after I graduated from Trinity, I got a job, um, as an overseas music examinations coordinator with Trinity Guildhall, which is a music examinations firm. And, uh, I thought like, Oh, this will secure my work visa for staying in England. <laughs> and, uh, I was totally wrong. <laughs> oh, no. So I got this full-time job right out of college and uh, it didn't secure my work visa. So uh, I was like, you know what? It's time to come back to San Diego. I'm just going to move back and uh, and get this mandolin career off the ground. And that's what I did. And it's in hindsight, it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because it really launched my mandolin career. I think I would, if I would have stayed in England, I would have just always been in Alison Stevens shadow and I would have never really been able to blossom uh, myself as a musician. So uh, it helped to kind of get far away. So was it tough then? Cause obviously you're in an area, you, you know, you get a, a job and you're also in an area where you're you're kind of surrounded. You've already made friends in this genre of music. And now you're mm -hmm. going back to San Diego, which was not necessarily this genre of music. You know, what was the kind of the first steps for you to be like, OK, I'm starting from ground zero kind of again. How did you approach that? Uh, well, the first steps was uh, to get a job at Guitar Center because I had to start paying off my student loans. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
which that didn't last long either. <laughs> I realized retail was not my forte. But uh, no, the, the first steps is always networking, right? For someone who's a professional musician uh, or who strives to be, and who, especially who's graduated from conservatory, networking is the most important thing. And so... Oddly enough, when I went to college to become a classical mandolinist, uh, the guitarist of Born Blind, he went to college to become a professional jazz guitarist. And so he was off in his career already as a jazz guitarist. So that was one contact I already had in my phone. And uh, yeah, we just start, started doing some background music gigs together. And through him, I met other jazz musicians in the San Diego scene. And I also talked with like my old classical guitar teacher and he introduced me to people and I just started building a community um, of musicians and you hope that gigs eventually come from that. And then when did you start teaching? Well, I started teaching right away because I was working at Guitar Center and that sucked. So uh, <laughs> That's the least surprising so, thing I've ever heard, by the way. <laughs> exactly, right? And uh, so, yeah, no, that was actually really amazing is that, you know, I was trying to figure out like, well, how I want to start teaching. How, how am I going to do this? And so I just started going to music shops and being like, oh, you know. I'm this mandolinist. I just graduated from, you know, uh, conservatory. You know, I'd love to teach mandolin here. And well, I went into this one store called Old Time Music uh, down in North Park. And I just so happened to walk in and the owner was there and his name's Bob Page. And Bob Page is really well known in, in the bluegrass world and uh, especially on the West Coast, but I think everywhere. Um, when he passed away, Scott Titchener put something on the mandolin cafe about him. So I didn't know anything about him, but I walked in and, and, you know, gave my spiel and, uh, he chat, you know, we chatted to each other for a while and he goes, great, you can teach here. You know, he's like, I'll give you your own room upstairs and, uh, off you go. And I went, wow, that's fantastic. Thank you. So, it was great through the kindness of his heart. He gave me a great deal uh, and a place to teach. And uh, I just started building my business and the word kind of got around. And, you know, um, at first uh, when I started teaching, you know, I, I only had like five students and that kind of grew to like 10 students. And so at the same time, I got a job as the production manager for uh, the San Diego Youth Symphony which is a massive organization. Uh, they have like nine orchestras, over a thousand kids. Holy and, cow. Um, yeah. And so I learned a lot, you know, uh, working that job as well. And of course I made more, more contacts, uh, networking contacts within the classical world through that. And so, um, yeah, that's basically how it started. And eventually, you know, it was, five students, 10 students, 20 students, 30 students. And when I got past 30 students, that's when I started thinking, uh, gosh, I'm working way too much. <laughs> I need to, <laughs> I need to drop something. And, and, uh, I remember this one winter I went out to Cape Cod and stayed in this little cottage in the dead of winter, spent Christmas there. And it was kind of to have one of those 
life thinking moments, you know, like what, what do I want out of life and what am I going to do? Because the San Diego Youth Symphony, they, you know, they wanted more out of me. They wanted it, you know, 100% full time. And, and also none of my students wanted to leave, you know, they wanted to stay with me. So, uh, yeah, I spent that winter and I brought a mandolin and some music and I, and, uh, I pretty much worked on my Preludium album, uh, in that cottage. And I went home and decided enough is enough. It's time to jump fully into the pool, into the deep end of the pool as a musician. You know, so the cabin that changes your life. And when do you move to Germany? All right. Well, I, I moved to Germany in 2014, uh, January of 2014. So I'm just coming up on 10 years now. And um, yeah, I mean, before that, after the cabin thing, you know, I went back and, and I quit San Diego Youth Symphony. And, you know, um, be- slightly before that, or actually around that same time, I guess, I was also thinking this is about 2010. I was thinking about going back to Trinity for postgraduate work and, um, for a postgraduate degree. And so I applied, I auditioned, I got in and, uh, I was about to go and all I needed was the funding. Now my bachelor's that cost me like $120,000, you know, to do that. You know, so I'm still in the process of trying to pay that off. <laughs> so I was hoping for some funding, and unfortunately, the funding that they offered just wasn't enough to make it worth it kind of deal. And I talked to Allison, and Allison's like, you know, uh, uh, I don't recommend coming. You know, why don't you uh, stay there? And it looks like you're already doing great. Just keep doing what you're doing. And she kind of gave me a pep talk. And, it, like, right at that time, like, the very next day after that phone conversation – I feel like I got my first gig with the San Diego Symphony uh, doing Mahler, Song of the Earth. So, yeah, it just seemed kind of work out. And it ended up, Allison ended up passing away October 10th, 2010. Oh, man, I'm sorry. From cancer, yeah, at the age of 40. So oh. uh, that was, yes, yeah, it was a real shame. And I think she probably knew even at that stage, you know, uh, which was probably before summer. I think we had the chat or during summer. And so, um, yeah, that was a real loss um for me and for the the music community um but that also kind of helped propel that decision like all right 
now I'm in it. Let's just do this full time. And, and it took off, you know, then I, I did San Diego symphony, San Diego opera. Then I did uh camarada ensemble, uh, Bach Collegium, San Diego. Um, yeah, it just, and it just kind of took off and I really settled in to San Diego. Well, I was gonna say, those must be some uh, different venues than what you were playing in hardcore bands, huh? <laughs> totally 100 <laughs> percent. that's so wild to think about a little nicer <laughs> yeah. yeah nicer yeah. nicer dressing rooms uh you know uh is, <laughs> they I have, smell better for sure <laughs> it, it's interesting because you you have the perspective one of the questions i had again before really knowing too much of your background was like one of the things i think is a common theme in in any musician's life when you're like all supposed to work on something uh you get to practice and there's definitely one person who hasn't worked on any of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Does that happen I in do. the classical world? Because it seems like so much more rigid and preparation has to be intense. You know, is there, is, does that happen in that, in that realm? Yeah. Only, only when you have bad musicians in the ensemble, you know, I think it, I mean, it's definitely, especially at a professional level because you're paid to be prepared and uh and so if if you're not you generally don't get hired again like that's <laughs> that's your only gig um and people do find it very frustrating but i it has happened where I, i've shown up and um actually it's come to think of it, it happens quite a bit with especially with guitarists guitarists <laughs> usually Anytime I'm playing with a guitarist, he tends to underestimate. He's like, oh, this is just mandolin music. It'll be fine. You know? Uh, all right. <laughs> and, then, and then we sit down and he looks at the music and he goes, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I probably should have looked at this more. Yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. And so that's usually frustrating. But definitely when it comes to like symphony stuff or you know, mainstream stuff. No, every one, all these guys are, they're such impeccable sight readers that even if they didn't practice a lot, they can still fake their way through it. You know, it, it only takes one or two times to go through something and then they're just locked in. And so, uh, yeah, I'm always in awe of symphony players that their reading abilities is just incredible. Um, and how fast they can, can get stuff it's really amazing so yeah but you, you had asked me about germany and so yeah so my career was going amazing and uh you know i was doing the gare mandolin orchestra um i was yeah i was doing stuff with mike marshall you know i did i was teaching at the um the old mandolin symposium the david grisman and mike marshall mandolin symposium and yeah, I taught there two or three years, which I loved. It's such a shame that's not around anymore. Yeah, no uh, kidding, man. Such a great event. So my life was going great, and then I fell in love. And uh, yeah, that pretty much, as it always does when you fall in love, it turns everything upside down. And so I uh, fell in love with my wife, uh, Stephanie, who's from Germany. And uh, when we decided to, um, you know, embark on this journey together uh it was very clear that her being a professor at a university and me being the freelance musician which one of us was moving <laughs> 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 and so, 
it was clearly me. So uh, I found myself, yeah, moving to a foreign country in 2014 in pursuit of love. Been there ever since. What was it like then? You teach a lot online. We were talking about that before we started recording. You know, you, you, you were strictly an online teacher now. Did you just plan on taking students via Skype with you to Germany? Or was that still wide open moving there thinking what you were going to do? Uh, no, um, I, I had planned on teaching online as uh, kind of like a way to, you know, keep the income rolling in until, again, you know, I could wet network and start playing with ensembles and the or local orchestras and, and get going. And my San Diego students, now at this time, I have over 50 students probably closer to about 60 at that point in San Diego. So I had to tell all of these people that, you know, sorry, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm leaving you. And it's not <laughs> like there was any other mandolin teachers in San Diego that could take up where I left off. So I felt really bad and it, it broke my heart to lose some of the students. Um, but almost all of them said like, well, no worries. We'll just do lessons with you online. And I was like, oh, okay. So I ended up, I ended up keeping about 40 students online uh, when I moved out. Yeah. So I was like, wow, all right, well, this, this is actually really doable, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and it was great. And so I just, I just taught online and then uh, again, started making connections and performing with the, the local Landis Theater, Detmold uh, Landis Theater and um, another Baroque ensemble in that area. And, uh, but the student thing just kept growing <laughs> more and more people just kept signing up for lessons. And, uh, so here I am teaching about 40 hours a week still online. Are you still taking students? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of. Yeah. yeah fo just follow Chris, go to his website and follow just in case, you know, anything opens up. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of students. No, it's, it's, it's great. I'm always looking for, you know, for really keen students who, who want to, who want to get better and, and want to put in the work. And, uh, because it's such a fun adventure, it's, uh, I really enjoyed the adventures that I had with Allison Stevens and actually all my teachers, Peter Pupping and Robert Hoth and Andrew Poppy. Um, it, it's such a, a special relationship. And, uh, and so I, I really do cherish all my students and, and I enjoy working with them and showing them cool things and, and going through great repertoire. So, yeah, I mean, if people are interested in studying with me, they can just send me an email and, and uh, be subjected to many questions as I pry <laughs> for information. <laughs> sure. This this recording of the Dawn album, I just, uh, I, I mean, I highly recommend it. I, I wanted to talk about a couple tunes. The, the first tune, Images in Broken Glass.
sounds like it could have been on, I don't know if you're a Radiohead fan or not, but it um, it sounded very kind of Radiohead-ish to me in a sense of like, I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna like this album a lot right away because it's, I'm not really familiar with tons of classical music. It, it was approachable for someone who doesn't listen to classical music right away. And I was like, oh, this is just great melodic music. Yes. Good. I'm glad you said that because... That's kind of what I'm after with my compositions. Um, I've kind of, it's funny here in, it, well, in San Diego, I was kind of known as a mandolinist and an educator who maybe wrote a tune here or there. And it seems like in Germany, I'm known as the composer who, uh, oh yeah, he also might do a show every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I seem to have, my roles have kind of changed somehow. And I think here in Germany, I'm more known as the composer. And so it's really, um, and my output has just gone crazy uh, since I've moved here to Germany. So I don't know, maybe it's inspiration or uh, I don't know. I guess, I guess inspiration or, or more time on my hands to compose. <laughs> sure. Um, and also I have more people asking for commissions and that always inspires me too. But so with my, with my music, my, my musical language has been changing. I think definitely since living here in, in Germany. Um, and I don't think it's the location that's changed it. It's just, you know, as years go by. I was listening to one of your podcasts with uh, Joe Walsh, who's a great guy and great mandolinist. And he had said something that really, that I totally agreed with. And I was like, yeah, totally, man. And he was like, when he was talking about the albums he was recording, he was realizing like, he's like, I was realizing like I wasn't playing the music that I was listening to. Like, so it was something along those lines where like what he was playing at the time didn't really reflect the music that he actually listened to. And now he's writing and now he's, you know, recording at least that album. I can't remember which one it, it was he was promoting, but he was saying, well, you know, now I'm writing music like what I listen to or what I would listen to. And that's essentially where I've come to. I was realizing that, you know, as a classical mandolinist, you're kind of expected to play, you know, Vivaldi, Kalache, Beethoven's, you know, uh, Mounier, Kuahara, the standard, you know, repertoire. And I was realizing that I was playing that music, but I wasn't listening to it. You know, I'm not sitting at, I'm not sitting in my car cruising down the street listening to Kalachi's Preludes from <laughs> <Right>. Solo Mandolin, <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, I'm listening. I'm listening to like Limp Biscuit, or you know, I'm li listening <laughs> right. to like Sick of It All, or you know, you know, Madball or something, you know. And so, um, you know, and and when even when it comes to classical music, you know, I listen. You know, I'm very much into the minimalist movement. Not even like post minimalism. I'm into like the 1960s minimalist music where it's like one phrase that just repeats for 20 minutes, you know, kind of thing. And so, you know, I, was just, I listened to a lot of Phil Glass and Steve Reich and Terry Riley and, and uh, you know, and, and even stuff like Zoe Keating, uh, Joe uh, Walsh, he had mentioned he's really into Martin Hayes and Dennis, Dennis Cahill. And I love that CD, the uh, Lonesome Touch, and even their other stuff. And actually, uh, Martin Hayes' new album with the Common Ground. Oh, man, that is amazing. 
Have you heard that? Yes. It's, in, it's incredible. You know, and that's the stuff that I listen to. And I just, I don't know. I realized that as a mandolinist, I should be playing stuff that I actually listen to, you know, or like that reflects that. And so I started hearing that in my own compositions and I guess it was a piece, well, my, my most popular piece to date is a piece called Utuma. I've written it in many different formations, but the one that's kind of settled uh, is for mandolin orchestra, or what we call out here at Zupfokesta. And uh, in there, you know, I that was kind of one of the first compositions where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to throw some hardcore stuff in here. Like, I'm going to make the accompaniment like really heavy and groove. Why, why, why can't classical music groove? Right. Why not? And so, yeah, so that's what I did and everyone's loved it. And, and you, so I think Utuma is probably to date still my most popular piece, at least according to Gama. And, um, and so from that point on, I just started being more free. And so like, uh, Born Blind had a song called, uh, Look Into the Soul. And it had this really great bass riff, really cool groove. And so I ended up writing uh, a piece for solo mandolin and mandolin orchestras when I was on tour. And I was going to do a show with the Seattle Mandolin Orchestra. And we wanted to do something together. So I was like, you know what? I'll write a piece for us. And so I wrote this piece called Look Into My Soul. <laughs> and <laughs> the, main, the main groove is that hardcore song is, is I, I literally took it from born blind and, and I, I turned it into a mandolin mini concerto and, uh, and I loved it. I love the power that came from it. And I love the fun that we all have while playing it. And I noticed younger people wanted to play stuff like that and they smile when they play. And they have fun, you know? And so, um, yeah. So the music that I write now, I think, really reflects more on what I listen to and what touches my soul as opposed to these are the classical rules and I'm a classical composer, so I need to write these kind of classical pieces and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so with Recording of the Dawn and the Kensington Etudes in general, I just wanted to write really beautiful music that helped um, that people can enjoy and listen to. And, but also that would help students uh, want to work on their technique and want to get better. Speaking of the track and technique, the recording of the Dawn, what is that technique near the end? Is that like a sweep technique that you're doing when it's kind of swelling up and, and uh, it's so incredible sounding. The whole song, the whole track <laughs> oh, is, but man, that that is such a like it builds up. The, this album is very moody and emotional. Like it, it just mm-hmm. the, the the sounds, the the reverb, everything about it is just very 
it's it's beautiful cool thank you it's it's very gray and dark here in germany very little (laughs) sun so for a san diegan you know what else could i write but moody music (laughs) no um yeah recording in the dawn the technique uh that you're referring to is called harp arpeggio technique and essentially what that is is that's a glide stroke that goes down and then a glide stroke that goes up a glide stroke is when you use gravity to let the pick fall through the strings in a mathematical fashion. So just like you would strum a chord, brum, right? You let your hand fall. You don't necessarily push. You let your hand fall through the string. So it's a nice, delicate sound. A classical technique of a glide stroke is you're basically strumming, but you're able to regulate the fall of the hand so that it separates the notes. So that way it doesn't sound aggressive, but it's mathematically separated in threes or fours. Now, a harp arpeggio technique, what makes that hard is it's a glide stroke going down, and then it's your index finger pushing the pick, gliding back up in one motion. And some people refer to it as like a circular motion, because when I do it, I do it in a circular motion to help regulate the timing of the notes so that you get perfect four going down and perfect four coming up. And when you do it quickly, it gives this, you know, very uh, ethereal harp sound, harp-like sound. Yeah, it's beautiful sounding. And then I, cool. I do one one other note, and I'm glad, like, I would be nervous normally to ask this of a classical musician, but because of the fact that uh, your background, I thought there were parts of Gazing in the Aurora that reminded me of something Eddie Van Halen would have played in Eruption. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, not bad, uh, not not too far off in a way, because the tech, um, I think you're referring to the technique at the end. Yes, yes. is uh that's essentially um an exercise in pull-offs and essentially (laughs) you know what what is eddie van halen mostly known for but tapping right and tapping is a mixture of a hammer-on and a pull-off right and uh with two hands and that's pretty much what's happening only it's only happening with the left hand and the right hand is picking every other note um but yeah they're all hammer-ons and pull-offs in the end. Um, let's talk real quick about your gear. Um, you know, you had an F5 at one point, but yeah. you, you, you have a couple instruments that you credit in here or makers that you credit. And so what are, it looks yeah. like you might have two main, two main mandolins. Uh, well, I have one main mandolin. Uh, I mean, there's some musicians that they, they find they have one voice. You know, like you find that with the Israeli mandolinist, right? Like Kerman, that's my main voice. I'm kind of the type of mandolinist where I believe it, it, it's not my voice is whatever the right instrument is for the job. 
right? So I have Baroque mandolins, I have American Gibson mandolins, I have, you know, German classical, Italian classical, because every, every job might require a different sound, a different tone. So I think the instrument that I play the most is, and that you hear on the album the most, is um, my Classico model by Alfred Voll, who's a German maker. Um, incredible, incredible classical bullback mandolin made out of rosewood, Indian rosewood and spruce top. Now, do you buy something like that brand new or is that something that has been around a lot of years? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's something that, um, I commissioned him to make and, and he did a fantastic job. I love that instrument. And, um, you mentioned images in broken glass. That is a 1921 Gibson A Junior that I also love. Yeah, and with a Scordatura tuning, I tuned it down to 430, and then I retuned the D strings to C and E flat. Oh, get out! Wow. And so that whole song, yeah. So that whole song, the technique that song is working on, is getting two tones out of one string back and forth, like oscillating back and forth, uh, which gives it that Philip glass sound C and E flat. And so that's me playing the D string back and forth. And then I reach out and I grab all the other notes and the chords and so on and so forth. Wow. That's amazing. Is that something, is that a classical <laughs> tuning or is that something that you just were like, I need to do this out of necessity from what I hear in my head? No, Scordatura tuning has been around for a long time. Uh, and um, in fact, another piece that inspired me to utilize that particular tuning, um, a piece by Jörg Kindle, and uh, I think it's called Aphrodite. Um, and so I was kind of playing that and I was like, oh, that's such a lovely tuning. It's a shame this piece doesn't groove. <laughs> and so <laughs> I just started when I started embarking on, on, uh, writing the Kensington etudes, uh, I, yeah, I just, I started, you know, messing around trying to make this tuning groove and that's how it turned into that. And then, you know, if I was writing an etude for somebody and I actually started really liking it and really like seeing myself play it, it turned into like a one page, it turned from a one page etude into like a four page concert piece and that was one of those that was one of those pieces that you know eventually turned out to be quite a long longer piece what about picks and strings uh, i use tomastic strings with well it depends on the mandolin again but on the alfred vol tomastic strings with the hannabach e string and uh, my plectrum is the black treckle plectrum uh, which is a, a classical, it's like the Vola plectrum you talked with Katerina about. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's like a rubber classical pick, but mine is a little thinner and sharper point. So uh, I get a, a slightly uh, thinner sound than what Katerina gets. So, um, geez, this, is, this has been such a, a fun talk, man. Thanks. It's cool to hear your influences and, and, and to hear like th – the, the path that you've taken to get where you are. And I think that the things you're talking about, like trying to add, you know, a, a groove or you're, you're, you're trying to, that's the artists that make waves. Yeah. I, I really, really admire your, your work ethic and your, um, and your, and your thinking of, of, of 
um, adventurous thinking, I guess it would be of trying to trying to find a new way. I love it. Thanks, dude. I think the the main thing is that I think the the musicians that are the most successful are the ones that just try and be themselves, right? They Absolutely. Don't, they don't. Go- Right. They don't go like, oh, you know, I'm going to we're going to try and be like David Grisman quintet. Well, we already have the David Grisman quintet. We don't need another one. Exactly. Like, go do go do your own thing because you're never going to sound as good as the David Grisman quintet. They're great. You know, he's he shaped generations of musicians and are like, oh, I'm going to try and be Chris Thiele. Well, we we already have Chris Thiele. Right. We don't need another one. We need you. We need, you know, what you listen to and 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 what inspires you and and i think for me it, it took me a while to figure that out you know definitely when i graduated from trinity uh i was i had this preconception of what it is to be a classical mandolinist and uh and i think you know most classical musicians do when they graduate because you have to kind of toe the line you have to show that you've put in your time and that you've you're paying respect to the traditions, hundreds of years of tradition, and you know the repertoire. And uh, I just feel so lucky that I'm supported in my career and I'm at a stage where I could go, well, I've done that. Now I want to, I don't know, I just want to be myself. And if people dig it, they dig it. And if they don't, they don't. It's all good. And uh, there's plenty of people in the world, you know, to like some mandolin music. And uh so I think that's that's what's really important. So I really respect the artists that uh, just go out and be themselves, you know. Well, I got two more questions for you here. And the, the first one is, if you only had 10 minutes a day to work on something to get better, what is something that you would work on or that you would recommend your students to work on? Again, coming from the thought of like, you know, you and I and a lot of people on this podcast are lucky because we can play a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? And some yeah. people, you know, <laughs> totally. yeah, some some people have to have, you know, multiple things going on. So they only get to pick it up if they're lucky once a day. And I think everybody can get better if they just pick it up for 10 minutes a day. Absolutely. Yeah, I actually have quite a few of those students that are professionals. They have jobs that are very taxing and they can only find you know, 10, 15 minutes a day to practice. So it, it's kind of a two part question. And if you like, I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you these two uh, exercises and you can post them on your website. Heck yeah. I'd love that. And uh, so if, if you're somebody who is desiring to be a classical mandolinist, well, the majority of our music is extremely right hand based. It's all these glide strokes and arpeggio techniques and tremolo and duo style and stuff like that. And so I think finding how to have a softer touch or working on a softer touch uh, and relying on gravity can can really help your tone and, and benefit you down the road. And so um, I would do different glide stroke patterns to build uh, that ability to relax. You know, and it's just using open strings, although you can add some left hand and, and, you know, make little tunes out of the, t- out of the re- practice. So definitely for someone who, you know, wants to play kalachi preludes and stuff like that, you have to, you have to get a little bit of right hand technique time in, um, to get that sound. I think for the majority of your listeners and for the majority of the mandolinists out there, the biggest thing about having very little time to play is that you never have a chance to really build coordination. 
between the left and the right hands, right? They never really truly sink in. So I would do an exercise where I would come up with a eight note pattern. And I, I, I do this with my students. This is actually how we start their lessons is that um, we have an eight note pattern and you start playing quarter notes, that uh, eight note pattern, and you're doing a 90 degree angle pick with al straight alternate strokes. So down and up. And you're really getting those notes long and full so that they sound perfect. The timing is perfect. Then you're going to speed up the right hand. You have to do this with a metronome, by the way. So you pick your tempo. We'll say 80 for right now. Um, and so your left hand will continue to play that pattern as quarter notes. But your right hand will now double, double up and play eighth notes. And then your right hand will do triplets. And then your right hand will do 16th notes. Now, the 16th notes, that's the final stage, right? For the right hand, that's where we're aiming for. So now that we have our right hand, and the whole time you're listening to your tone, you're listening to your volume, you're making sure that that's not changing at any step of the way. So that way you know you're using the same technique for quarter notes that you are for 16th notes. You're relaxing in your sound. And then I would speed up the left hand. So then the left hand will go from quarter notes into eighth notes. And then it will go into the pattern as it should be, which is 16th notes. And hopefully the whole step of the way you've kept your, you've kept all those notes sounding clean and full and you're not dropping anything. And, uh, yeah. And then that should give you clean 16th notes. Now, what I do with my students is I make them play one tempo for an entire week, let's say for a weekly student. Uh, so whoever, Joe, Joe Schmo, he'll, he'll have to do that exercise every day, you know, at uh, 80 beats per minute. And if he succeeds, you know, the first go at it, if it sounds 100% perfect, then that's all he needs to do. Then he's done with that exercise for that day. Um, if not, you know, then he needs to, you know, do, do it again, you know, and it takes no more than 10, 15 minutes to, to, to do it. Uh, but I, he stays at 80. So even if he succeeds, he doesn't make the metronome faster. If he doesn't succeed, he doesn't make the metronome slower. He just stays at 80. Because what we're trying to do is, is get 80 to be his new standard tempo, right? That's, that's his new comfortable tempo, right? And so then when he comes back to his lesson, Joe Schmo gets two chances to play it for me perfectly. And if he plays it for me perfectly, then the next week he has to do everything at 84. And then the next week, if he plays it perfectly in, within the two shots I give him, then it goes to 88 then 92. And the idea, and I know probably your listeners are like, geez, this guy's a slave driver. Oh my <laughs> God. But the idea is that when you go one click on a metronome, and when I say click, I'm talking about old school metronomes that have the balance weight and everything, pendulum weight, uh, which is usually three to four beats per minute distance. But when you go from 80 to 84, it's so close that your body doesn't actually register that it's playing faster. It's, 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 you can hardly feel a difference in speed from 80 to 84. 
And so, but clearly, logically, you are playing faster when you go from 80 to 84. And so if you sink in and you get 84 to be your new standard tempo, well, now when we go to 88, right, your body shouldn't feel that speed change either. But it's logically, it's logically faster. And then when you settle in at 88, again, same thing to 92. And you can do that all the way up to 100 at least. Yeah. Wow. That's a great one, man. You know, it's not faster. Yeah. yeah. I love so that. I'll shoot that off to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's awesome. And then the final question is, do you have a favorite beer? Of course. Uh, Detmolder Landesbier. Landsbier. Uh, Landsbier is a really nice dark beer. Uh, Detmolder, uh, it's the Detmold uh, Stadt Brewery, which is in the state of uh, Lippa, it's, uh, in, or in the town of Detmold. And that's where I first moved. And we were right down the street from the brewery. And, uh, oh, it's yeah, it's great. Sehr lecker, as we would say here in Germany. It means tastes very good. <laughs> it sounds very good. <laughs> so, yeah, it's yummy. It's good stuff. Where can people find you? What's the best place to uh, to check you out and, and, and all that good stuff online? Well, the best place, to, I think, uh, to find me is on Facebook. Um, I have a music page, and then I also have a personal page, and I do them all, all the same. And then also Instagram, and then, of course, I have YouTube, and my website is uh, chrisaquavella.com, and, uh, or just shoot me an email. It's, I, I try and uh, make myself very open to people. So uh, I love chatting mandolin. This was a great talk. I had an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I'm so glad we connected. This is great. Cool. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I love, uh, I love your podcast. And oh, it's wow, great thank that you. Uh, there's somebody out there talking mandolin you know and and giving us a place to geek out and and hear some new music you know I, I definitely haven't heard some of the artists that you've had and i've really enjoyed uh listening through them that's what i want i just want to spread the mandolin word <laughs> wow that's killer that's awesome yeah that's that's uh it, we need people like yourself and, and scott tishner over at mandolin cafe I mean, my buddy yeah those are those are such great tools and uh, i'm so thankful for uh what you guys do because, uh, you know, it gives us a voice. Well, I'm thankful for what everybody does, too, if it wasn't for mandolin playing. I don't, I don't know where I'd be. I'd a horrible job, for sure. <laughs> <I'm> sure. <laughs> no doubt. Ain't <laughs> that the truth? That, that is. Oh, so, that's the truth. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much, buddy. Great. Thank you, and have a good one. All right. Thank you so much to Chris for doing the podcast. Thank you to everybody who listens. I really, truly appreciate you. I wish you all a happy new year. Be sure to follow the links below if you like what you heard and purchase some of Chris's music. And don't forget to go to the Mandolin's Beer website where you can download the exercises that Chris has sent along that he talks about in the 10 minutes a day portion. Cheers, everybody. Have a happy new year.